guys uh, recognize the guy in the funny hat? G.K. Chesterton, really smart guy, Brit British guy, uh, wrote several books, fiction and nonfiction, and highly quotable in a number of ways. He, he was a real character, too. One of his more memorable quotes, for me at least, is here. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. He's not talking about eternal life. He's not talking about coming to faith. Christianity as the reception of life. He's really talking about the hard road of discipleship. So I've become a Christian. I have eternal life. My sins are forgiven. And then the real work begins on our end. And thinking about the theme this morning, we're going to be talking about how Jesus plans to grow his church. We might paraphrase that a little bit and say that it's been found difficult and not adequately tried growing the church the way Jesus wants us to. Uh, salvation's absolutely free, but discipleship and being a part of what Christ does on the earth today, that requires everything from us. There's another guy from a generation prior, uh, Chesterton, about 100 years ago. The next guy in our next quote is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, still very well known by name, uh, lived in the middle of the last century, also highly quotable, another very, very sharp guy. Uh, one of his many notable quotes is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And again, not, not having to do with uh, forgiveness of sins or the reception of eternal life, but rather that having to come, come to faith in Christ, that process of discipleship requires everything of you. It really requires this willingness on our part to die to our own desires, the things that we might have said were our priorities before conversion, we're, we have to be willing to lay those down to get where Christ wants us doing the things he wants us to do. And if you know anything of Bonhoeffer's story, you know that this was something that he lived out. So both spiritually in his own walk with the Lord, but, but also in the way his life ran. If you remember, Bonhoeffer was in the United States. He was a German, and he was in the United States when World War II broke out. And he was learning from other Christians and Christian groups here he was enjoying his time. He felt like it was very profitable to him. Well, when the war broke out in Germany, uh, Bonhoeffer's friends encouraged him to stay here in the United States where it was safe. And he thought about it and he prayed about it. He took their counsel seriously, certainly. But at the end of the day, he said this. He said, I can't be there after the war to help rebuild the church if I'm not suffering with the church through these dark days. And so he went back to Germany to suffer with the, what they called the professing church in Germany as opposed to the official uh, church, government-sanctioned church that was under Hitler's rule. And 72 years ago yesterday, Bonhoeffer was hanged by the neck until he was dead uh, less than a month before the end of the war. So he lived this out. That is, to follow Christ in life, not, not the reception of eternal life, but Christianity as the faith walked out, lived out, it requires everything of us. So if we're going to be about God and God's things in this life, we have to be willing to lay down our priorities, our protocols for how we want to get things done, and we have to be willing to do things in a very different way. That would be Jesus' way. The thing God's... If you say to somebody today, what's God up to in the world today... We might say a number of things, but certainly central in all of those would be that uh, God is building his church. Jesus Christ is building his church today. And so if you're a Christian, that's the building effort 
you're called to be a part of. You and I are called as believers to be part of Jesus building his church. And Jesus has a church growth model. You know, church growth is a big business today. Uh, the church is like, uh, you know, we're, we're models, are we not? Americans of measuring things, figuring out how things work, etc. And about 30 years ago, Willow Creek Church in Chicago became this ginormous entity that affected pretty much the model for churches across the United States and in some ways around the world as well. And basically the model was grow big and grow fast. The mega church became the model for success in the United States a few decades ago. When Willow Creek came into the scene, started holding conferences, there were probably a dozen or less what we call megachurches in the United States at that time. And megachurch is defined by weekly attendance that averages over 2,000. You know, they were in the 25 to 30,000 range. Uh, today, so three decades later, there's over 1,700 Protestant churches that can claim mega status, 2,000 people or more weekly attendance. And church growth, by the way, it's a science. There's all kinds of books. And this is, this is a business model. A growing big churches is a business model. You can read the formulas, and if you'll do certain things, certain ways, get certain personalities, have certain kinds of worship, leadership, and songs, and invest money in certain ways, you can grow a mega church. There's a model. It's a science. It's an, it's an industry. Now, in saying that, I, I no way mean to disparage large churches for being large. It's simply this. When you read what God calls us to, to build his church, you won't see numbers as the metric for success. So you could have a mega church that has very few believers in it. The, the numbers aren't indicative of whether or not that church is living out Christ's call for them or if they're reaching others in Christ's name with the gospel. The numbers don't tell the story. And so when you read Jesus' church growth model, he's not, he's not parroting this kind of line about it's all about the numbers. He has a very different take on church growth entirely. And that's what we want to be about today. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said he would, future tense, build his church. I will build my church. He said then, and that's the building program that he's been about ever since. And that's the building program we're called to. So if you remember, we're in Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The title is Christ over all. And if you remember in chapters one through three, if you've been here, we looked at the theology Paul was bringing out in this letter. It's deep theology. It's rich theology. It's very broad theology. The pinnacle there in chapter one was if you want to know what God's up to, what's the sum of all things? What's the end to which all things are moving? Paul said all things are moving to this end. God is reconciling all things to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus. All things will be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the end to which God is working today. And then he said in chapters two and three, and part of that, part of God's work to bring all things under the consummation of Christ as Lord is he's building the church today. And so Paul says in chapters two and three, it's not a Gentile thing. It's not a Jewish thing. It's one new entity made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's the temple of God. It's the family of God. It's the household of faith. It's the body of Christ. It's the church. That's what's going on in the world today. That's what God is up to. And last time when we got into chapter 4 and we started applying what Paul talked about, Paul said the first thing you need to know when you start applying the theology of Ephesians is you've got to go low and go slow. You've got to walk in humility and gentleness. It's not all about me. I'm not grabbing things for myself. And you've got to be patient or 
Really, the word gets translated as long-suffering. If you'll start applying these truths, you'll do so humbly, gently, and patiently. And you'll do that, those, put on those characteristics of Christ, so that you can bear with one another, he says. So we would say, so you can put up with each other. That we're all a mess. We all have sin. And Paul basically says, if you're not willing to be humble and gentle and patient, you won't be able to put up with each other's sin over time. You won't be able to suffer long with each other and bear up with one another so that you can maintain the unity in the church that God himself has brought about. And verse 6 talked about these seven points of perfect unity that you and I come into as Christians. We don't create them. The Trinity's involved in bringing us together. Christ's work is involved in bringing us together. And so there's this unity Paul was focusing on. You've got to go low and slow if you're going to maintain that unity. This morning in the text we'll be in, he talks about diversity. And he says God's after unity in his church, but he's using diversity to help the church come together in the unity he calls us to. So the diversity is meant to build the church. This is the way Jesus builds his church. There's a bunch of things, guys, we're going to just brush over. We'll read in the text this morning. We won't be able to develop for time's sake. I ran long first service, and I'm trying not to do so this time. So we're going to be in Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. I'm reading from the ESV, and if you use the Pew Bible, that's page 977. So Paul starts here. He says, but grace was given. And the but, in contrast to the unity he's just talked about, he's now going to start talking about diversity. So he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and this is a reference from Psalm 68, when he, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. These are the spiritual gifts that we'll talk about in just a bit. He parenthetically says, in saying he, Christ ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended? into the lower regions, the earth, by the way, translations vary on this, the lower regions of the earth or the lower regions that are compared to heaven, the earth itself. He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he mentions the gifts that this conquering king gave. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry or the work of service for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that's Jesus' paradigm for church growth, and we'll flesh this out. Now, the two points that we're going to cover, guys, this morning are, one, Jesus has equipped each 
and every one of us to help grow his church. We're all equipped for this building program and that all of us serving together, that is Jesus' church growth model. All of us serving in the ways God has gifted and called us, that is the church growth model. Look at verse 7 for just a minute. He says, grace was given to each one of us. The Greek there is charis. And then if you look at the end of verse 7, it says, he gave gifts to men. These are grace gifts. These are charis gifts. Look at verse 16. These grace gifts, these charis gifts are given to every one of us. It's every joint and it's each part working properly. So Paul says, God says through Paul, God has given each one of us a grace gift, a spiritual gift by which we build up the body of Christ. So we can call these grace gifts, they are means of serving God by serving others, and they are given to every one of us so that together we grow Christ's church. So everyone's gifted, everyone is part of the building process, the church growth process. Chuck Swindoll, this I think is on your study sheet, defines a spiritual gift this way, a God-given ability or skill that enables a believer and only believers can have grace gifts. They're given post or either post or with our conversion. You don't have a grace gift, a spiritual gift, if you're not a Christian. Uh, enables a believer to perform a specific function in the body of Christ with effectiveness and ease. With effectiveness and ease. And we'll qualify this just a little bit. When you're serving others in your area of gift, God's given you a spiritual gift. When you're serving others in that, you're effective in doing it in a way that someone who isn't gifted will not be effective. If you're a teacher, when you teach, other people should be encouraged by your teaching. If you have the gift of leadership, other people should be encouraged by your leadership. They will be if it's a gift. When he says with ease, we qualify that. It doesn't mean that you serving in your niche of gift that it's easy or that it's somehow costless. It will be costly to serve in your area of gift. And it won't always be easy in the sense that I just do this thing and it comes out well. Sometimes preparing to use your gift or using it actually will require a lot of you. But you'll have the sense that I'm doing what I'm made to do. It's easy in that sense. I'm doing the thing God made me to do. I'm a round peg in a round hole. It's easy in that sense. But it's not just easy. So just fleshing this out a little bit on what we're talking about before we talk about applying it, how many spiritual gifts or grace gifts are there? That's a fair question. So we've got four passages in the New Testament, and none of them are the same. So Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4 all talk about spiritual gifts, and none of them list the same gifts. So what do we conclude from that? We could go one of two ways. We could say that if you combine all four texts, you've got all of the gifts listed. That's one understanding. You've got another understanding that says the lists aren't the same because, because God doesn't mean to say they are only these ones, but he's showing you the main ones, maybe most of them, and there may be other gifts also that simply aren't named. I tend to lean to that one. Qualified this way, someone could say, something wacky i have a gift of whatever that's not what i'm saying okay it's going to be something along the lines certainly along some of the descriptive lines of the kinds of gifts already articulated in the scripture so how many are they you can read the lists they're on your study sheet i don't remember if you tally them all up how many there are um, 
but you'll probably find yourself in one of those or something very similar to one. How many kinds of gifts are there? So if you read 1 Peter 4, Peter seems to break the gifts down into teaching and serving. Because those are the two branches he talks about in 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 talk about spiritual gifts. And there he just says, if you're teaching or if you're serving, speaking and serving gifts. Maybe we could break them down that way. Maybe how many gifts do I have? If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift, singular at least. It's a given. If you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. He gives grace gifts to every part of the body. So you've got at least one and you may have more. And if you want to brush up on this, and I would certainly encourage you to do so, the key passages there are all listed on your study sheet and you can look at those later. Without getting too bogged down in this, as I did first service, I do want to cover another series of topics or questions along this line. Uh, in the church uh, body broadly, um, there's what's called charismatic or Pentecostal groups or charismatic or Pentecostal ways of seeing spiritual gifts. So if someone says to me, do you believe in the charismatic gifts? I say, of course I do. Now, depending on how well they know me, they may not know what I mean by that. So what's a charismatic gift? So the gifts Jesus gives are charis gifts. If you have a spiritual gift, and if you're a believer, you do, you have a, by definition, you have a charismatic gift. Do I believe in the charismatic gifts? Of course I do. They're all charismatic. Then someone says that begs the question, that's just plain at semantics. Do you believe, this is usually where it comes down, do you believe that what we might call the sign gifts of the New Testament era, meaning um, prophecy, the ability to accurately foretell the future, that's what I'm talking about here, or uh, gifts of healing, uh, where someone can go up and pray for someone and they get healed, or the gifts of miraculous that I can pray and God, God regularly uses me to bring about the miraculous. Mike, do you believe that God is still gifting the church in those ways today? And let me say this carefully. Um, I'm not afraid of what you think of me, but I don't want to crush anybody in any unnecessary way on this, okay? So, if I, and, and there's many nuances if, if you read up on this you'll see that there's many different ways of looking at these topics and figuring out what god's up to or not if you say a gift of healing looks like what the apostles did in the new testament that i don't think god's giving the gift of healing today if you say the gift of miracles and the way you see in the gospels and in the early pages of acts i don't think god's giving that gift today either and i say that because i don't see them and the church generally doesn't see them you don't see them now, having said that, that's not to say that God doesn't do the miraculous in, in healing, right? We believe in a miracle-working God. God's the same. But generally what you see biblically is that there are periods in history when the miraculous becomes, if we can put it this way, common. And that's when the law is given through Moses. It's under Elijah and Elisha in the period of the prophets. And it's in the Gospels in the early pages of the New Testament. That's when you see miracles, routinely, a lot of them. And we conclude this, basically. When God was doing something new, he was advocating, this is my guy and the message is real. He attested to that person and their ministry by signs of power. In fact, this is exactly what you see in John's Gospel. Jesus says to the folks around him, if you don't believe my words, he says, believe the signs of power. I can't remember if it's Nicodemus, but one of the guys in John's gospel says, 
We know you're from God because no man could do the works you do if God were not with him. So they're attesting miracles. God puts his stamp on someone in their message by saying, this guy's from me, and he does so through these acts of power. The gifts in the New Testament period that I read about is not what I generally see claims made for in the church today. That is, I don't know of anyone who goes up to pray for anyone for healing and they get healed. I don't know of them. I've never read of them. I don't know anyone who can pray for miracles the way the early church did and see those miracles happen. I'm not aware of them. I've not read of them, period. Then this is what I am aware of. Generally today, the places that you'll hear about more routinely than here, miracles of healing or miracles, period, occurring tend to be in third world places where people are hearing the gospel for the first time and God's doing the same thing for them that he's done for people throughout history. He's stamping that messenger and their message with symbols of power by saying, this guy's from me, you should listen to him. Now, guys, this is what I mean, I don't want to discourage. Uh, this is my bottom line. Uh, God's God, and I'm not, and you're not. And God can do whatever he wants. Okay, so somebody says, well, God doesn't do that. I'm like, I'm a little slow to say that. God's God, and I'm not. Um, we pray for people to be healed in this church. And when we pray, we're asking God to circumvent the natural order of things and supernaturally heal someone. Do we believe in miracles? Yes, we do. Do we believe in God healing? Yes, we do. It's just that it's not the sign gift things that you tend to see in the early church. That's my take. Uh, tongues and interpretation of tongues. And guy, I say this with affection. I grew up my, about five years of my early uh, Christian life were all in charismatic churches. So I don't say this as somebody throwing rocks from the outside. I have uh, emotional empathy for uh, folks from the family of faith that have a different theology today than I do. Um, I don't see the gift of tongues today the way it's described in the New Testament. And in all my early meetings, you know, guys, would, they would pray in tongues and occasionally someone would give an interpretation. And it's like, I have no idea if there's anything legit going on here or not. I think I heard one time where I thought, I think that might have been the real deal. And I've read people that I know and respect, and they'll tell one, one story very specifically. Somebody's in a prayer meeting, and they go to this person afterwards, and they said, oh, I love what you prayed. And the person says, well, I prayed in tongues. And, and the person says, well, I'm from that country. That's my language. I heard it, and, and this is what you said. And I, I have no reason to doubt them. I just want to be very slow by saying, what God is doing is this, because when I compare the New Testament descriptions with what's going on today, I don't see the same thing. Numerically, with uh, regularity, but I still want to say God's God. He can do as he pleases. We pray for miracles. We pray for healings. I'm good with that. So that's my sort of my, my bottom line, my take on that. If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, and probably in this group at least half of us don't, if you'll start serving in any of the ways you can, in all likelihood, you'll find your spiritual niche, your gift. There are spiritual gifts tests that you can take, and I'd be glad to get you one. If you want one, you holler, you let me know, and I'll get you one. And they're just a way of answering a bunch of questions and seeing where my bents lead, where probably my gifts are going to be identified through that. So there's lots of gifts. Everybody's got a gift. We want to let God be God and all of that, but we want to know and we want to serve in our area of gift. Now, look at verse 11. Some grace gifts equip other grace gifts. They're all grace gifts. They're all charismatic gifts. They're supernatural by definition. There's a distinction to be made, though. Th some gifts 
are not meant to do the main work of the church. They're actually meant to help other people do the work of the church. These aren't lazy gifts. It's not like Tom Sawyer painting the fence. Come along and have some fun with me. But, but it's the equipping gifts, gifts that are intentionally meant by God to equip others to do the work. So here's this by analogy. We call the church many things. We call it the church or the body or the temple or the family of faith, a number of things. But in that body analogy, if you saw me sweep my kitchen floor, you would see Mike's body move, the arms and the legs move, the torso bends, the, you know, the arms move to sweep the floor and bend down and get the dust bin and all that stuff. And that would be Mike's body doing this thing. But there's a bunch of stuff going on that you don't see, right? Because inside Mike's body, Mike's breathing air in his lungs. So for the respiratory system, it's working. And you don't see that. But I'm breathing in that air, oxygens are being replaced, uh, carbon dioxide in my lungs. Oxygen's going through my circulatory system, the heart, all the veins and arteries to give oxygen to the cells, take away waste, right? And I've got nutrition that's coming in through my digestive system giving me all the food i need and i've got uh, my filtering systems in my kidneys and my liver making sure they take poison stuff out give me the good stuff i need all that's going on but we wouldn't say my digestive system swept the floor or my heart swept the floor but that stuff's got to be functioning so that the rest of the body parts can do what they're equipped and made to do and friends that's generally that's the leadership gifts in the church the leadership gifts in the church, by and large, are meant to be like organs or interior systems in the body that help others do their job. They're not meant to be the beginning and end of the church, which is typically what we see today. So uh, I do want to clarify here, too. Apostles and prophets, it says there, Christ gave apostles and prophets. I understand this to be once for all, that these are not describing people today. Apostles and prophets were the New Testament era apostles and prophets you read about them in chapter 2 verse 20 where it says the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets remember that the foundation of the church has been laid paul says this in first corinthians 3 no other man no man can lay another foundation except this one that is laid which is christ and the apostles and the prophets they laid the foundation for the church and under them the completion of the canon of the bible was formed as well so that the bible you and i t uh, read today and study today is is the truth foundation upon which the church is built today so that those aren't given today in that sense you may again depending on church background someone might say he's an apostle or he's a prophet they're not talking about it in this sense typically in those venues an apostle might be a missionary he might be someone who's skilled in evangelism who preaches people come to faith in christ churches are built this is in the secondary sense. Prophets, not in the Agabus, Acts type sense that can without fault tell you what God is up to in the future, but typically more people who, who when they speak and teach have a very effective way of reaching people in their need in the moment. Those things are still going on for sure, but not in this first or primary sense. So Jesus is still giving the gifts of evangelism and shepherds or pastors and teachers, but those are meant to equip others. So if you see a church model in which the, uh, the leadership is the main thing, then we've missed the point. Because that's, that's exactly the opposite of what God says he's calling us to in this church growth. If evangelists and pastor teachers are doing our job as intended, others are being equipped. 
when church leadership focuses on itself or when the church focuses on the leadership primarily, when the work of the church is understood to be primarily in the hands of church staff, we've lost our mission and lost our way. Church leadership is an equipping ministry to help everyone else do what they're gifted and called to do. Ministry doesn't begin here, it doesn't end here. The body does it. Those equipping gifts are like organs or body systems. I want to mention something specific to Lion and Lamb also. If you've been here long, you know we typically don't use the term pastor. We don't say Pastor Mike. Thank you, and don't. <laughs> pastor is a, a perfectly biblical word. Pastor and shepherd are the same thing in the New Testament, the same thing. And this text says, Christ gives some as shepherds and pastors. Are we opposed to shepherds and pastors? No, we're not. We don't use the term because we think it tends to be confusing. We use the term elders. We say the leaders are the elders and the deacons in Lion Lamb Church. And by using that term, we're trying to say collectively we're the guys who are most responsible for especially the teaching and leadership roles. So someone, I saw someone recently and they said, I know you don't use this term, but I know you're a pastor. And I said, well, I am a pastor. I know that. I'm a shepherd. That's my gift. That's my calling. I'm a pastor teacher. That's the way God's wired me. But this is what we're trying to avoid. Uh, if a church has a staff position open and they say, we have a position for the pastor of preaching, let's say. So the, the, the role in the church staff hierarchy is called the pastor. You could hire a person who's not a pastor and call them pastor because the staff role is called pastor, but they, they may not be gifted. God in these terms, he's describing gifts he gives, not staff positions. And what's happened basically, we're in the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. But you remember all those Reformation guys, what did they come out of? They came out of Roman Catholicism. And what was the state of Roman Catholicism at that time? And think about this for just a second. The early church develops, and in some ways we could say it devolved. And so by the time of the Reformation, you've got the, the important people and the unimportant people in the church. The unimportant people, they come and they watch the important people do the Mass. But we know the important people, they wear special clothing. And they know languages we don't know. Not because they pray in tongues, but because they know Latin. And they're the important ones. And what do we call them? Well, we call them Father, and we call them Priest, and we call the big one, we call him Papa. That's Pope. And so there's this hierarchy in which the clergy and laity system develops. And so when the Reformers came out, they got, were saved by God's grace through faith. They got that. They got that the Scriptures are sufficient. They got that too. But guys, they brought all kinds of stuff with them from Rome. And that lingers with us today. So the reason we don't routinely describe someone as the pastor or a pastor, pastor so-and-so, is because I think in many Protestant circles today, there's no difference in using that title than saying Father Mike or Papa somebody or he's the Pope. Jesus said in Matthew 23, call no man teacher because we are all brothers. He said, call no man father for we all have one father in heaven. And it's this thought that in the body, these, the, the gifts that we've got, they're descriptive of how God uses us, but it's not that some are up here and some are down here. I much prefer the body analogy where the, the equipping gifts are the stuff you don't see because what you really see are the body parts out doing the things they're called and gifted to do. So we want to make sure that we communicate as a church, everybody is a priest in the household of faith, First Peter says. 
You're all priests. Everybody's a priest. We all have gifts to, to offer. We all have gifts, charis, charismatic gifts, to serve through. So we do that in different ways. And all we're saying here is that some gifts enable other gifts to do their thing. So everybody serves, and one group is not more important than another. So all of us serving, that's, oh, sorry, I meant to point out this, the reason I've got Mark Dever up here, the image of him. Mark Dever is senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and he's a good brother in Christ. And the reason I've had a picture of him, he and his church, they get this from Ephesians about the church is meant to have everybody equipped and serving in their niche of gift. And so they put out Nine Marks Ministries, puts out lots of flyers and books. They, they host folks coming in, seminary students coming in. They host people coming into their church regularly to learn from them. And they do conferences where they're, they're helping churches be the church along these lines. He does that as well as anyone I know. So he gets it that the teaching and leadership roles are about equipping the rest of the church. That's sorry why I had his image up there. But if all of us aren't serving, then Jesus' model for growth is not being practiced in the church. Everybody's serving in their niche. Look at this in verse 15 and 16 again. Uh, he says, speaking the truth in love, we collectively, we grow in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly that's what makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's Jesus' church growth policy and process. It's every joint, it's every member contributing as they've been gifted by God to do so. Many of us, and this, uh, if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. Many of us underestimate the value of the gifts God has given us, and that's why we don't participate. It's why we don't serve. We, we, we might say this, I'm not even sure what my gift is. Well, then I'd say, well, you should find out. Or you say, well, I'm a gift of mercy, but that's no big deal. And I say, well, think of it this way. So if you read 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Trinity, it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that are all attributed to giving you as an individual member in the body of Christ your spiritual gift. So think of this for just a second. To the degree that we undervalue our gift, we're telling the Lord God, creator of the universe, the omnipotent, omniscient, benevolent, loving Father God, redeeming Savior, and sealing and enabling spirit that they don't know what they're doing. That they've made a mistake. That a peerless God who can make no errors has, in our case, has made a mistake. And he hasn't given us the gift that we were best suited for. If we undervalue our gift, that is in fact what we are implying. And you can't get there. God doesn't make mistakes. Not only is he wise and knowledgeable, but guys, because he loves us like nobody else can, it's in his benevolence and his goodness that he's also given us our gift so that we, you will enjoy, what you'll find is when you work in your area of gift, you'll say, I'm doing what I'm made to do. I enjoy what I'm doing. I love that I get to do this when we value the gifts God's given us. But what this means is no part of the body, whatever your gift is, whatever your social, economic standing, whatever, we are all members of the same body. None of us, none of us can afford to undervalue the gifts God has given us or the gifts he's given anyone else. 
nor should we overvalue them by saying some are so special, we'll never get there. They're the important ones. We're the unimportant ones. No, every gift is valued because everyone has been benevolently, wisely, with knowledge only the omnipotent God could have, omnipresent, omniscient God could have to give us those spiritual gifts. So none of us can afford to minimize our own gift or calling, nor those of others. The very concept of diversity in gifts means we don't all do the same thing. There's the old saying that uh, everyone is not a hammer and every problem is not a nail. Every problem is not a hammer, or excuse me, every person is not a hammer, every problem is not a nail. If someone showed up at your house, some kind of worker, some kind of technician, and they had one tool, maybe they had uh, 20 varieties of the same tool, they would not be much good to you because they need a, a whole host of different kinds of tools, each one made for a different thing. Have you guys ever broken the tip of a knife trying to use it as a screwdriver? It's because it's great as a knife, but it's lousy as a screwdriver. You want a screwdriver. And that's the thing here. We don't want everyone to be the same. We don't, we're not all meant to do the same thing. We need that diversity. Now, some people are so jazzed about their areas of gift and calling that they want everyone to do what they do. Have, I was going to say, do you know anyone like this? But some of you are this kind of person, I already know. So, you know, the person, the person who comes up to you and they say, you should go do this. You'd really like, you should go to that place. You should be involved in this ministry. Now, I hear this semi-regularly. Part of it is, if you're an example in the church, people want you to do it so that it lends credence to what they're doing. I, I understand that, but, but diversity is still the name of the game. So if someone says, Mike, you should do this, you should go there, it's like, I'm open. I pray, Lord, if you want me to, I'll go. I'll do. But unless you tell me to, I'm not. So we don't all do the same thing, and that would be the point. God's using the diversity of the body to build us all up. Now, how do we know when we're full grown? So if we say, okay, we start getting this, and we're, we find our gift, and we start serving others in the body, and, and how do we know when the church growth is done? How do we know when it's over and it's successful? Look at verses 13 through 15 again for just a second. Paul says, we will all attain to the unity of the faith. When the church is full grown, and you get this, the, the church growth uh, model plan is not over. It's not going to be over. Until Jesus calls us, it's not done. He says, we'll all attain to the unity of the faith. We're meant to work towards unity of the faith. Now, we could understand it a couple different ways. The faith could be the orthodox elements of the faith, that the Trinity, the Creator God, the, the God the Son, His full humanity, His physical death and resurrection, the sufficiency of the Scriptures, salvation by God's grace through faith. It could mean the orthodox elements of the faith, the faith. But it could also mean simply the faith by which we entered this new spiritual life is the same faith that we proceed in this spiritual life, that we live, we walk, Paul says elsewhere, we walk by faith. So we stay united by faith because we take God at his word and we operate on it. That could be by faith also. But we're supposed to be working towards a unity of faith. He also says there that the mature church is moving towards the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, the knowledge of the Son of God. You know, as Christians, we're called into a relationship. I was talking to someone just the other day. They were having a conversation with someone who's religious, and they go to church, and they said, well, when, 
when did it go from religion to a personal relationship for you? And the person said, well, I'm not sure it ever has. It's like, well, they're probably not a believer because it's relationship. So the second thing is this united in this knowledge in this personal relationship with Christ. And that's where when we talk to each other, I hope you guys do this in your conversations just as a normal talking point. What has God been showing you in your quiet times lately? Or are you having a regular devotional life? There's different descriptive terms we use. But are we as individuals, are we developing that personal knowledge of God and Christ for ourselves in our times with the word and prayer? You can't get this second hand. Other gifts can help us, right? But other gifts can't give us as an individual the knowledge of that personal relationship with God through Christ that no one else can take away. You don't have to have anyone tell you about it because you've got it for yourself. Are we growing together in this personal knowledge of God, this uh, moving towards what he calls this, the fullness of the stature of Christ? If we want to know as an individual or a church, are we moving towards the stature of Christ? We can just pull out the fruit of the spirit list in Galatians 5. Because if you want to know what Jesus is like embodied, it says, well, he is a loving. The fruit of the spirit is love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience. That means long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. If we want to know as an individual or as a church, all we have to do is ask ourselves, are we characterized by those fruits, by those descriptions? If we're not, we're not growing into that likeness or maturity of Christ. He also says, and this is a great word picture, he says we should be moving in a maturity related to our beliefs. He says doctrines. Look there at verse 14. He says you won't be children tossed around on the waves, carried about by the winds of doctrine. A little boat out on the, the wind-blown waves is just getting knocked around. And he said, no, Christian growth, when the church is building itself up, there's a doctrinal stability. And when you talk about doctrine to most people, the eyes glaze over right away. We're getting to something I won't understand. But really, all we're saying is, what has God said is true? What has God said is true? What does that look like? That's all we're talking about with doctrine. And guys, this is the thing. When you know the truth, no one can take it away from you. And someone comes up and tells you something contrary to the scripture, and you can tell them that's not true. Kent and I had a conversation with a guy not long ago that was at one hand encouraging and inspiring and totally confusing on the other. And I thought, this guy wants to believe certain things, and so he's reinterpreted the Bible to see it his way. Well, and I'm just thinking to myself, I know you've deluded yourself because you want to be deluded. And the way you're parsing that is not true. Because I know some things. And, and what you're doing is not true to the Scriptures. When you know what God has said is true, there's a stability to your life that others can't take away from you. And the last, he says, is we speak the truth in love. Are you and I characterized by this? This is a huge thing, by the way, speaking the truth in love. If you find someone who's willing to tell you the truth in love, you need to keep them around. You need to hang around those people because there's not very many of them around. Uh, speak the truth in love. John Stott said this, Truth becomes hard when not softened by love. Love becomes soft when not strengthened by truth. We want to do both of those. We want to speak the truth and we want to do so in love. So guys, have we arrived yet? Is the church full grown yet? We would say no, it's not. Are we full grown yet? No, we're not. 
If you're a young Christian, you can start serving now. You know you don't have to be old and mature and wizened and gray hair to serve. You can start serving right now, and you'll figure out your spiritual gifts early. If you're an older Christian, I would say keep serving. Uh, if you've been at this for a while, you probably know it's easy to get jaded sometimes. It's easy to become discouraged sometimes. You might say, I've been working at this faithfully, as I know, for a long time, and I'm just not seeing the fruit. And I'd say, well, only eternity will ultimately show the fruit that you and I have made through our investment. So keep at it. And if you don't know your gifts, simply start serving and working today and you will find them. Guys, this is the thing, too. Of what else can it be said in the universe? God is doing this and it has eternal value. Can you say that about your business? As a business, you can't. Can you say that about the sports you and I participate and our kids participate in? You can't. Can you say that about the families of origin we come from? Can't even that. Jesus said he's building his church. You and I get to participate in the most important thing going on in the universe today. It's building the body of Christ. Now that's exciting. And it lasts forever. And it depends on answering the call. So have, you and I, have we taken up the charge? Have we answered the call? If you're a Christian... You have a spiritual gift. Have you bothered to find out what it is? And are you serving the body of Christ in that niche, in that area of gift? Have we answered the call and are we being faithful? And by the way, if you don't know if you're a Christian, you should. Do you know that as a Christian, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God because the Holy Spirit's inside of us? If you don't have that, you need it. So talk to me or talk to any of the leaders after church. We'll be glad to pray with you. But if you don't have a spiritual gift, it means, by definition, you're not a Christian. The Holy Spirit's in us as believers. He seals us for the day of redemption, and he equips us with a spiritual gift to participate in God's building program. Father, thanks for saving us and for gifting us and, Lord, enabling us to be a part of what you're doing in the world today. Help us to do so, Lord, with our wills. Help us to do so intelligently, prayerfully, humbly. In Jesus' name, amen.